you could turn to Luke chapter 6, we will be in verses 27 through 36. This is actually the first time that I have ever preached out of the New Testament. Most people are more intimidated of doing Old Testament stories, but I actually have nightmares of G.K. Beale verbally abusing me for translating Greek phrases wrong. So I'm actually more intimidated by the New Testament, to be honest. So Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those for whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind and ungrateful, uh, he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I know that this is your word. I thank you that you have given us this radical paradigm shift of love that so often we want to just play people off and call people toxic and cut people out of our lives. And yet, this is such a relevant text, not only for our lives, but for all of humanity. I pray for the word that you would speak through me. Um, it wouldn't be anything that I have to say. And ultimately, I pray that this will show how much love that Jesus Christ himself shows for his own enemies. And we pray this all. In Jesus' holy name, amen. I think it's safe to say today that everyone here wants to be loved. You might thrive off of the animosity of your haters, but I'm pretty sure that you, want, you don't want people to dislike you. In fact, I would go so far as to say that not only do you want people to like you, but that you want to like and love other people. You may have a mortal enemy, someone that likes to use their lawn equipment at 5 o'clock in the morning. But there is someone, somewhere, that you want to either love or be loved. And it's not as if Christians are the only ones that have figured this out, because listen to these cultural pop icons that we love to adore, like Taylor Swift. No matter what happens in life, be good to people. Being good to people is a wonderful legacy to leave behind. Or think of John Mayer in his famous chorus, Fathers, be good to your daughters, 
Daughters will love like you do. Girls become lovers who turn into mothers. So mothers, be good to your daughters, too. I'm pretty sure that everyone in here wants to be known as a kind, accepting, and loving person. But it's really easy for us to use the word love, and we don't even know what that word means. And in our current climate, I think we are more able to call people out or to cut people out of our lives and call them toxic than to actually try to love other people. This passage is a rallying cry, not just for the church, but for people outside the church. Because when I was looking for these lovey-dovey inspirational quotes on Google, this was the first thing to show up. Jesus was right next to the Dalai Lama and the Beatles for what we're supposed to do when we love other people. And yet, Jesus says something here that's even more extreme, more counterculture than what even our society tells us to do. He goes beyond just saying, be excellent to each other. He tells us to love the very people that don't love us. Not just a lack of love, but the people that despise us and everything we stand for. Because of all of this, the very thrust of this passage today is because Jesus has shown us this uncompromising love, we can show uncompromising love to other people. So look with me again at this passage. Look at verses 27 through 31. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We see here the first time that Jesus ever uses his famous contrast, but I say to you, and it's not explicit in this book what Jesus was, ex- uh, what Jesus was contrasting here, but in Matthew chapter 5, he says exactly what the thought was. Because in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, he says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And even beyond Matthew, Jesus is alluding back to that passage in the Old Testament we just read in Leviticus 19. You shall not take vengeance or bear a judge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But if you listen closely, if you remember that passage back in Leviticus, the and love your enemy was not in there. And it's not really hard for us to look at all the Old Testament, all these passages on genocide, uh, genocide of the Canaanites, the imprecatory Psalms, these judgment passages of the nations around Israel, for, the, to, for us to get into the mindset of what the contemporary Jewish person would be thinking with Jesus. They wanted to take the idea of neighbor and have it in a restrictive sense. They didn't want to look outside the covenant community, other Israelites. You don't, for, it's one of those things where they know, think that they know one thing, and that is I know who I am supposed to love. 
This was such a debated topic for people contemporary to Jesus that the very question that prompts Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan four chapters later is a lawyer sarcastically asking him, well, Jesus, who is my neighbor then? So imagine the gall on the audience's faces when Jesus just said, love your enemies. Who does this guy think he is? You expect me to love my enemies? We are under Roman rule now, right now, Jesus. And you think I'm supposed to love those people? Because he doesn't even stop there. He says to do good to your enemies, to bless the people and pray for the people that want to bring hell to us. Going even further, Jesus says that if someone slaps us on the cheek, we are supposed to give him the other cheek. And even that does not paint the picture of what he's saying there because the Greek word is not your cheek, but it's your jaw. So what Jesus is not talking about an act of humiliation, he is talking about direct assault. What Jesus says is if someone sucker punches you in the face, you're supposed to give him your other side. Jesus goes on to summarize everything he just said in what we as a culture have called the golden rule. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or how I have always thought of it in preschool and how you've probably taught your children, treat others the way you want to be treated. It's very simple, isn't it? Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. All we are supposed to do is love the people that have a deep-seated hatred for us and want to destroy our life. When was the last time you could even imagine thinking something like that? To have this no-compromise, all-encompassing love for people around us. Because I think our regular disposition is to, call, is to just get people out of our lives, not even just the people our enemies, but anyone around us. We do not like people. We don't want to show any resemblance of love, not even to the random strangers we meet on the street. And for many men here, we have been taught this idea in culture of American machismo, that if someone tries to attack us, it, our honor is at stake and we are supposed to duke it out with them. That we are expected to be angry when someone cuts us off into traffic. That if you are submissive, then it's a sign of weakness. We want to summarize all of our life with Friedrich Nietzsche's thought, whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. And not just for the men here, but for everyone. We have people that we just cannot stand, that we do not like to be around. But rather than dealing with these problems, we like to find the groups of people that affirm us. We like to gather together and talk behind their backs. And instead of fixing these problems, we rather just get people that agree with us and talk bad about people behind their back. Jesus is calling us to something much higher much greater, a deeper kind of love than we could ever imagine. But Jesus isn't telling us here to be like my family's golden retriever, Sila, who every time she sees me and I run to her, she rolls over on her belly expecting a belly rub. We're not called to be pious pushovers. We're not called to be stupidly ignorant. Jesus is telling us that we need this radical paradigmatic shift 
a transformation of our mind where our knee-jerk reaction is not to throw Molotov cocktails right back at our enemies. Because there's an assumption behind this passage for us today. It's not just that we love the people that hate us, but we are called to love the people we hate. We are called to the people that we hate. The idea of Christian love is never going to be this thought, let's pick and choose who I have deemed worthy to be in my presence. It calls us to love the person completely opposite from us, the people that are ready to spit in our face on a day-to-day basis. But it's not just that. Jesus doesn't show us who to love. But secondly, Jesus also demonstrates how we are to love. Look again at verses 32 through 35. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies, do good, and lend nothing, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You can almost sense the sarcasm in Jesus' voice at this point. Do you actually think that you are being loving or you're doing something that great by just being kind to your friends because the people that you cannot stand are doing the exact same thing you think you're you're give, you're so magnanimous because you've given a hundred bucks to the person you know is going to give money back there are people that have nothing to do with christianity that do the exact same thing you want to judge people that don't show up to church on a regular basis and we make a game of all the, the cars that we see on a Sunday morning that aren't at church, guess what? You don't have any right to have a high and cocky attitude just for showing up to church. You're not showing any deeper kind of love just for being loving to the people around you. When we look at Jesus' words again here, the most wooden translation we can make of it is what sort of grace is it to you? Do you really think you're sacrificing something of yourself to be kind to your friends, to be loving to your friends, and to ignore the other people around you? The Anglican priest J.C. Ryle explains this passage as anybody can show kindness and charity when he hopes to gain something by it. But such charity should never content a Christian. The man who is content with it ought to remember that his practice does not rise an inch above the level of an old Roman or Greek idolater. We are not in T-ball here. You are not just earning participation points for showing up as a Christian. Instead, Jesus shows us this strong contrast back in verse 25, but love your enemies. To escape this safe thinking this completely unadulterated, uncompromised love for the people around us, a love, an unreciprocal love for the unlovely. 
what Jesus says here is truly counterculture. He is going against everything we have been taught, that history has always taught us that, it, that history is written by the victors, that if we come to believe that if you are submissive, then you are weak, and that if you do not get out of my way, then you, or you need to get out of my way because I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, and we just want to play everyone off that gets even close to us, that annoys us, that we do, can, cannot stand. But Jesus breaks down all of these molds that we have about love. He shows us that calling us not to this generic, fluffy, lovey-dovey love that I found all over Google. He instead calls us to love the very people that don't love us. And to be honest, there's a reason why that, this quotation, these, this passage, is so prevalent on, the Google, on Google. Because just saying love your enemies, it would get a thumbs up from the world. It's easy to stitch on a pillow. It's very tweetable. It's under 160 carats. It's got that cryptic sage-like feel that you would imagine Buddha or Confucius saying. But if you're sitting here right now and you're saying that feels so nice, but why is it I should even care? What is the reason for me to love my enemies? Well, here's your ground, and I'm so glad you're asking that question because Jesus gives us the very reason for why we should love our enemies. He's not just this sage sitting under a tree that gives us these cryptic sayings and then sends us on our way. He gives us reasons for why we should love our enemies because if you look again, it says... For the, he, God, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And it's at this point of Jesus' speech that the Jews, and probably even us, would be squirming in our seats. Because the rest of the passage has not sounded like us at all. We do not want to love our enemies. But yeah, you know, we are pretty ungrateful. And I can look at myself, and anybody that follows my emails can see that I like to complain about potholes. I like to complain about the snow. I like to complain about not having a place to live. I can find, I've often thought that this is my spiritual gift. <laughs> but to be perfectly honest, it's not just complaining that Jesus is describing here. Because Jesus summarizes the whole thought with that last verse, verse 36. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And this would make the back row Baptist Jews in the audience wake up from their seats. Because they know Jesus is actually alluding to something here. And if you know the Old Testament well, or you have read the earlier part of Leviticus 19, this might have just caught your ear. Because he is alluding to, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And we use that term holy so much. I know when I went to a fundamentalist Baptist, church, or a fundamentalist Baptist college, we wanted to say anyone that liked to go to the, all the services all the time, we said they had a holier-than-thou mentality. They did all the right things. They followed all the rules. But I think we might miss the idea of what the term holiness, personal holiness, means in a Christian's life. Because Herman Bavink explains it. That holiness is that which has been chosen and set apart by Yahweh, divested of its common character by special ceremonies. It has received a character of its own and now lives in this new condition in accordance with law prescribed for it 
Israel is a holy people because God has chosen it and set it apart. Holiness doesn't just have this moral, ethical character. It has this idea of separateness in everything. And this idea, this attitude might not be the general description you think of yourself because it's not just being kind or loving, but another way, the mercy that God is calling us to in this passage, we can also say it's compassionate. The word hardly even registers in our mind. We don't want to be merciful. We don't want to be just. Often the first thought that comes into our mind is what's in it for me or what am I going to get out of this? And it's not just a generic form of mercy. Because this verse, verse 36, is calling us to the very same mercy that God himself shows. In fact, the word there is only used two times in the New Testament. But it's all over the place in the Old Testament. Because it's a, the word there is the phrase God says about himself in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousand, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But it's not just that we don't demonstrate mercy on our own terms, what we think is merciful. We don't even like the mercy that God shows to others. Because you guys remember Jonah. You remember my passage on Jonah? I didn't get to chapter 4. But Jonah actually spits this verse right back in God's face and says, For this reason I made haste to Tarshish, because I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that you would forgive my enemies, the Ninevites. Your thought process today is, I know you, God. I know what you're like, and I would rather die than see my enemies forgiven by you. We need mercy. It's not just that we need to show mercy to others. We need it for ourselves. And sometimes we might not even know what mercy truly means. And that's why Jesus is not just this wise sage that I keep saying. He doesn't just give us these thoughts, these pithy statements that we get to quote on Twitter. He actually says, you know what? You don't know what it means to love your enemies. You don't know what it means to be merciful, to be compassionate. Well, here, let me show you what it means to be merciful and to be compassionate. Because Jesus, he knew that the mindset of not just the Jewish audience that was listening to him right there, but that our mindset is to not be any of these things. So he demonstrates himself in his life what it means to be merciful, to be loving, to be accepting, that without this mercy that we show, that because we are generically that, we are actually at odds with God right now. We are God's enemies. But Jesus' last words in the book of Luke, chapter 23, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. As Jesus is dying on the cross, he is seeking to reconcile the very enemies of God himself, the ones that lack mercy, the ones that are ungrateful and are evil. We are ourselves God's enemies, and without the death and resurrection of Christ 
our Lord, we deserve to have God's hatred. But it's at this point that we see Christ's love perfectly displayed and perfectly displays what he preached in Luke 6 right here. Because it says in Romans that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. The wrath that was deserved of us is taken on by Christ himself. That he demonstrates perfect mercy in his death and coming back to life. This is the grounds for why we can be merciful to our enemies, and to everyone we see. Because of Jesus' death, we can show uncompromising love for all of those around us. If you place your trust in Christ Jesus today, and you truly believe that Christ has died on behalf of your sins, then this is why you should show mercy to your enemies. Imagine what it's like for you to say, I believe that I was God's enemy, and yet you, show, you lack the compassion, the mercy to show to just random people you meet. You have the gospel itself as your reason for why you should love those around you. And if you've never believed this, if you don't even know what it means, what mercy means to begin with, or let alone what the gospel itself says and shows us about mercy, then God's own graciousness is open to you today. Christ died in order to show, to demonstrate his love and mercy for his enemies. He sought to reconcile the people that were at enmity with God himself. This passage is only demonstrating what all of the Bible is telling us to do, that because of what God has done for us, because Christ has died and risen again for our forgiveness, we can show uncompromising love. And we can not just show that, but we can have peace with God himself, the only enemy that we need to be reconciled with today.